God the Holy Spirit, come in power and might that we might see Jesus. Amen. You may or may not be aware of this, but uh, whoever is at the organ uh, has heard the sermon once before, and so I suppose that's the soundtrack uh, to the sermon uh, as, it, as it comes up. So that, that was a little bit darker than I'd hoped for, uh, but um, I'll have to get it next time. Well, you have uh, heard from this pulpit uh, time and time again uh, the message that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. That there is no impediment too great that God cannot overcome on your behalf to be in relationship with you. But we hear this morning in Mark's gospel of an unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Our minds and hearts should immediately cry out upon hearing this passage, what is this unforgivable sin? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Uh, Jesus gives us some clues as to why that is in the context of what's going on here. Uh, he and the scribes are, are talking and Jesus teaching uh, who Jesus is, having a profound impact on people, changing uh, their lives, uh, what he's uh, saying, equating himself with God, and of course all of the amazing miracles that he has performed and the response of these scribes who should know better versed well in the law, part of the judiciary of the people of Israel, they say that he's possessed. Worse yet, he's possessed by the devil himself. Not able to see that what is before them, who is before them, is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who has come with great power and great might in order to save us. They have seen and gazed upon light, and they have called it darkness. And Jesus responds to them. He begins with the word, truly. Sometimes it's, uh, it's translated as verily. That is, Jesus is saying, listen up. Here is something that you can believe. It is true, it is without error, and it does not equivocate. Listen. Now, when I heard this gospel passage, uh, when I read it, uh, the first time I was preparing for this sermon, uh, immediately my heart and my mind gravitated to verse 29 about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's just it. Even those of us who are believers, it's very easy for us to pole vault over completely what Jesus says, which is in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. These words have a tendency to fall lightly on the ears of many of us. It's hard for us to see the beauty in them. But to those who are alive to their own sinfulness, to their own brokenness, to their own blasphemy, and deeply sensible of the need for mercy. These words are the sweetest and most precious that could ever be uttered. All sins shall be forgiven. The sins of youth and age, 
the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Paul, the sins of idolaters, the sins of open enemies of Christ like those who crucified him, the sins of backsliders, even St. Peter, all, all may be forgiven. The blood of Jesus cleanses everything. The righteousness of Jesus can cover all and hide all from God's eyes, as J.C. Ryle would say. This beautiful word that Jesus gives us is the crown and glory of the gospel. What it proposes to us is that even as sinners, we are given free pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission without money and without price. As the book of Acts says, through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. This morning, if anything, lay hold of this precious jewel without delay. If we never received it before, it's for you, it's for me, it's for everybody. We to this very day, if we come to Jesus Christ, we may be completely forgiven. Though our sins have been as scarlet, Jesus is able to make them as white as snow. Let us hold to this if we have received it already. There are times when we feel faint, unworthy, and cast down. But if we have really come to Jesus by faith, our sins are fully forgiven. They are cast behind God's back, blotted out of the book of his remembrance, sunk into the depths of the sea. Again, as Bishop Ra would say. But then comes verse 29. What then is this unpardonable sin? William Lane says, The scribal accusations against Jesus amount to a denial of the power and greatness of the Spirit of God. By assigning the action of God to a demonic origin, the scribes betray a perversion of spirit, which, in defiance of the truth, chooses to call light darkness. In this historical context... Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious, deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin are those who willfully resist the offer of grace, mercy, and forgiveness that Jesus Christ holds out to us. The mark of one who is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable, unforgivable sin, is one who has a progressive hardening of their own hearts. Where the work of the Spirit of God leads us to repentance. He causes those scales to fall from our eyes to be able to behold Jesus as He is. And yet, at the same time, thankfully, the scriptures leave it vague as to who exactly this applies to. For we don't know whom God has ransomed. And even though those who would resist God's call on their life even now, who's to say when they won't give in to the hounds of heaven nipping at their heels? 
And so it's difficult to talk about what this unpardonable sin is. But it's not so difficult to point out what it is not. We can trust that it is certain that this morning, if you are one of those who are troubled with fears, that they have sinned the unpardonable sin, are the very people who have not sinned it. The very fact that you are afraid and anxious about it is the strongest possible evidence in your favor. A troubled conscience, an anxiety about salvation and a dread of judgment, a concern about the next world and a desire to escape from the wrath of God, these will probably never be found in the hearts of people who have sinned the sin for which there is no forgiveness. It's far more likely that the general marks of such a person will be utter hardness of conscience, an absence of any feeling, and a complete lack of spiritual feeling. There is such a thing which is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. Thomas Fuller, the great 17th century divine, wrote a book called Cause and Cure of a Wounded Conscience. He writes, The sin against the Holy Ghost is ever attended with these two symptoms an absence of contrition and of all desire of forgiveness. Now, if you can truly say that, they, that your sins are a burden to you and that you desire forgiveness and would give anything to attain it, be of good comfort because you have not yet and by God's grace never shall commit that unpardonable offense. I will not define how near you have been unto it. As David said to Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. So maybe you have missed it very narrowly. But assure yourself, you are not as guilty thereof. Uh, and Richard Simmons, a parishioner here at the Advent, we just discussed his latest book in the dean's class. And I would encourage you to buy a copy from the bookstore. I'm pretty shameless. Uh, and in his latest book, he brings up and reminds me of a wonderful story uh, from C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, which is part of his Chronicles of Narnia series. And I pick up uh, with Richard's voice. Uh, there's a young girl named Jill who is totally consumed with herself and is convinced that she alone knows what is best for her life. She wants to have nothing to do with Aslan, the powerful and magnificent lion who represents Jesus Christ in Lewis's books. Yet Jill is desperately searching for water. Now Lewis's words. Jill grows unbearably thirsty. She can hear a st stream somewhere in the forest. Driven by her thirst, she begins to look for this source of water, cautiously, because she is fearful of running into the lion. She finds the stream, but she is paralyzed by what she sees there. Aslan, huge and golden, still as a statue but terribly alive, is sitting beside the water. She waits for a long time, wrestling with her thoughts and hoping that he'll just go away. Then Aslan says, If you are thirsty, you may drink. Jill is startled and refuses to come closer. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away a while while I do? said Jill. 
The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And just as Jill gazed at its motionless hulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I will make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said Aslan. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So many in our world, not just the scribes of Jesus' day, have willfully shut Jesus out of their hearts. There before them is this incredible offer of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And Jesus welcomes them, even the hardest of hearts, with open arms. And yet they look for another stream and they search in vain. So this morning, will we drink from the streams of the living water that are offered to us free without price? Will we place our faith in Jesus Christ? Or will we persist in looking for another stream that isn't there? Some look at God at worst as their enemy. At best, as one from whom we should keep our distance from. We may be aware of his love and mercy, but we think, not yet. I'll live a little longer, and then I will turn more deliberately to the Lord. This is foolishness, as it exemplifies the belief in our world that Jesus is just one of many options out there. Surely we can save ourselves. Surely we can find another stream, and maybe it's not as good as the stream that Jesus offers, but for right now, it will do. But we know that this searching only leads to frustration, which leads ultimately to paralysis in our own lives. Just a couple moments ago, we sang the hymn, Just As I Am, written by Charlotte Elliott, who lived in the latter part of the 18th and early part of the 19th centuries. And she struggled for much of her life wondering whether or not to say yes to this offer that Jesus gave her. She had all these hang-ups as to why she wasn't worthy or why she shouldn't say yes. And she visited many churches and solicited the help of many pastors. These are the words of Watchman Nee, the great leader of the Chinese church who died in prison for his faith. And he writes, all of whom counseled her told her to simply pray more, study the Bible more, perform more noble deeds, resolve to do better. However, all the advice she received was unavailing. For seven or eight more years, Charlotte continued struggling in vain against sin, all the while mired in self-condemnation. After some time, Charlotte Elliott met an eminent preacher, 
The encounter would prove to be a great turning point in Charlotte's life. She asked him, as she had asked many others, how she might be saved. Sensing the enormous burden weighing upon her conscience, the preacher responded compassionately, Go to God, just as you are. Charlotte asked him incredulously, Do I not have to do better, make more progress, improve more before I believe in the Lord Jesus? The preacher simply repeated this simple, priceless phrase. You must come to him just as you are. These few liberating words of fellowship had a deep and indelible effect on Charlotte Elliott and would later inspire her to write the hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. There may be somebody this morning within sound of my voice whose heart is so hardened as to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And yet, it may be that by the Holy Spirit of God this morning, your heart, your conscience is pricked. And all of a sudden, a light shines where you see that there now is a way where there seemed to be no way. And the scales have fallen from your eyes and you're able to behold Jesus as he is loving, compassionate forgiveness. And his promise is without fail that even this day he will come and have fellowship with you and instill within you streams of living water that will never dry up. Only that you would simply heed his call and come unto him all ye that travail and are heavy laden and he will refresh you. Come as you are. Come without money and buy. Come without a plea. But for the blood of Jesus, come and be saved. Amen.